Welcome to the dough, where Cash is queen and we hardly know her, but we're still here figuring her out together. Because y'all, season two is here, okay? Hosted every week by me, X Maya. Remember, I'm going to be talking to all types of people about their relationship to money. Reality stars, entrepreneurs, financial experts, and even some of my own friends. Basically, anyone who will get real with me about their dollars. How they make money, how they spend it, and how they save it. Because I'm trying to retire early, people. Season 2 of The Dough is out on March 21st, wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Breaking news from the war in Ukraine. Multiple airstrikes hit the city of Lviv, and Russia has given the last defenders of Mariupol that chilling ultimatum, surrender or be eliminated. The Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning Russia not to, in his words, eliminate the last remaining Ukrainian soldiers inside the besieged city of Mariupol, or it will be the end of peace talks. Welcome to The Bubble. This is your host, Andy Slavitt. That, of course was the latest from the Ukraine, where I'm saddened to report that our friend, my friend, Chef Jose Andres, has suffered a bombing at their kitchen in Kharkiv. From what I hear, there are folks that are injured are going to be fine, but our hearts go out to the real heroes that are there cooking meals for people, healing people. And that's the way we're going to start the show today. We're going to get to a conversation about the healthcare system here in the U.S., but I, I do want to first bring you a conversation with someone who's been over spending the last week on the border with refugees. Uh, he recorded some of his conversations over there, and I really wanted to give people a sense of the dialogue. So we're going to talk in a second uh, to my friend Curtis Lane. And then after that, the, the major part of the show, I think, asks a fascinating question, and it's a what-if question. What if we could really rally this country to learn the lessons of the pandemic and get to a better healthcare system that had the kinds of things in it that we saw a little of during the pandemic. Some of it is more virtual care, uh, more wearables and devices, a more equitable system, a system that people didn't have to worry about paying for. And I have on the show Alan Lotvin for a really fascinating conversation about that. But first, let's talk to my friend Curtis, who, who just got back from a trip to Poland where he spent the week with refugees. Welcome to the bubble, Curtis. Thanks for having me. So 
you just took a trip to the border in Poland uh, where you get to interact um, with many of the people crossing the border. Can you describe um, what it is you saw and tell us a little bit about what you saw the migrants experiencing? It, it was an amazing trip in terms of really seeing directly. You know, it's different than watching TV and which tends to make things kind of not real, but this was very much real. So I went over um, Saturday night and Sunday afternoon, Sunday night, we met with a lot of refugees. And the next morning we went to the border and actually spent half the day there and watching the actual process by which refugees cross the border, get greeted by relief organizations, then go to a center, it's kind of a replaced Costco or a Kia type store where there's lots of relief organizations set up there to help people figure out where they go from there. And then go went to Warsaw to see the hotels that many of them stay at because a lot of the relief organizations took big books of rooms, including the whole hotels in a variety of places all across Poland um, and Romania and I think any of the other countries that are there and watches the people then were helped to go meet their family, et cetera. And, you know, it was, you know, watching, number one, to see what the polls and these relief organizations have done to be able to handle over 4 million people in basically six weeks is nothing short of phenomenal. It was incredible to see how well that was working because it's only women, children, the elderly. That's the thing that strikes you first. There are no men because the men are obviously staying to fight. So you've got these people that really had to leave in a nanosecond with everything they own, basically sometimes in a shopping cart, sometimes in a bag, sometimes in a roller bag, and that's everything they own, walking with multiple kids and going across the border. And you're just struck by how quickly their lives were just changed so dramatically. Did you get to interact with with um, some of the some of the women and some of the families directly? And what what kind of things were you hearing? And what what, what really stood out? What surprised you? I did spend a lot of time with them in various settings, um, but where I got to know them the most was actually waiting to check into a plane with 141 of them that we were flying them to Israel on behalf of an organization that I work with, and as a part of that. I went on the bus with them to the airport, and then checking in was a three-hour process that was a mess. But we waited literally online with them. And, you know, when you think about it, back to being women and children, they're there with big bags at this point. How do they get there? So you end up helping them. And I hung out with basically two or three families for quite a while and for the people that were around us. And then you did get to know them, and they're just scared out of their minds. Were they in touch with their husbands and brothers and fathers? Did they know where they were? Were they updated or were they completely in the dark? I think at times they were. They were in contact. I know we spoke to one uh, woman who quite a bit was explaining to us that they do speak by cell phones and they're, they're texting with them. But there are times where that's not the case. And one young woman told us about how um, she went 24 hours without having any contact with her boyfriend. So when you go from having a lot of contact and you're texting and you're in touch with them and then he disappears for 24 hours, she explained to us, obviously, how scared she was and how she obviously thought about the worst. So I want to, I want to come back and talk about some of the more political and policy dimensions of, of the implications of what you saw. But I want to play some tape that you brought back as part of the organization that you were over there with um, of one woman's story. 
But uh, the first, uh, on the first day of war, uh, we decided to move the, to countryside, to the Kiev uh, Oblast. Uh, it's uh, 40 kilometers uh, uh, near Kiev. And we thought that in uh, countryside that would be safe uh, than in a huge city, in the capital of Ukraine, because we live uh, on the 30th floor. Uh, we uh, decided to move to country to my grandmother, uh, to my grandmother, and uh, on the 8th of March, Russian uh, armies entered our village, our village, yeah, yeah, our village, and we lived uh, for 12 days in occupied. Uh, we have no uh, electricity, no gas line, no, uh, we have no. Clear water. Clear water. We drink water from uh, river. Not river. It's well. it's called uh, well. Well, yeah. Uh, it uh, was very horrible to live because we almost we lived twelve days in uh, shelter. Shelter. Ah, shelter. Yeah, we live in shelter. Cold shelter. There was minus two uh, degrees below zero in this shelter, and in our house there was seven degrees uh, above zero. And we slept with two coats on us, with two uh, trousers, with two uh, with the shoes on, and uh, it was a nightmare in our life. Uh, and right now, it all seems like a film. Or I don't know how to explain our feelings because it's like a nightmare that uh, comes into our lives. So, if you could give us the audience who sense to be able to see through your eyes, you know, what what else can you tell us about the, this experience that comes through in, in in the story we just heard? Well, it was a pretty consistent story across the board. Is that one minute they were living their lives, and the next minute their lives were up completely overturned. Um, that young woman, I think she's around 1920, um, so she hid with her grandparents and, you know, told us more later that in terms of getting water, there was that discussion about a well. She actually said that they were drinking water out of, you know, puddles, if you will, during that period, and it was so cold, they were freezing for days because it was below zero. So that was, you know, a perfect example of people escaping. But then there was someone you could understand and relate to, a woman who was a um, cardiovascular surgeon. Um, she was in her office in the, bur- in, I guess, in the burbs in the hospital. She went home, and they were trying to decide what to do, and then all of a sudden there were bombs going off, and she got in the car with her two daughters and their dog. That's one thing that you see consistently. It's not just the women, children, the elderly. It's also their dogs and got in the car and they had to skirt various areas in this tiny car to get out of where they were to make it to uh, across the border. And this woman talking about how she had been operating the day before and here she was with her life completely up to her overturned and that they thought they were okay for a second in their homes and then realized that they weren't very suddenly and had to run with nothing. And they were waiting to figure out where to go. They were probably gonna go to Israel um, but they had a problem because their dog was so big there wasn't a cage big enough for it. So therefore, they had to wait. Were you impressed with the jobs that, that the relief agencies across the board uh, were doing? It's unbelievable. The thing that struck me, there were three things. One was the Polish government. 
And in terms of how organized and how supportive they were, you know, there was a map in um, in the train station in Warsaw with instructions to the the um, refugees to say, hey, don't, and it was in Ukrainian, and don't just go up to the big cities. Here are all these other smaller towns and cities where there'll be better opportunities for you to have jobs and, you know, be more comfortable for you to be there. I mean, so they were really figuring out how to do that. Um, so I thought the Polish government was everywhere and very effective. The other thing that just struck me is the number of relief organizations. I have a picture of when you come across the border, you're basically walking up, and I filmed it, um, a whole walkway full of relief organizations. And the things that come out, you know, there's ones, one that struck out, there were Sikhs that had a little food truck. There was, you know, ones from Poland, ones from here, from all over the world coming to provide some type of relief. Mm. But the two things that struck me consistently of everywhere I went were actually the Israeli and Jewish relief organizations where a ton of money had been given, but the volunteers that were there, they were everywhere. The first tent when you crossed the border uh, where we were was an Israeli managed medical tent where that was the only thing that was right on the border. And then later on, you saw doctors from Israeli hospitals in the refugee center, which was the only medical care that we were receiving. So it was them and the thing called the World Food Kitchen. And I think, Andy, you're familiar with that World Central Kitchen, yeah. World Central Kitchen. Yeah. Um, it was amazing to see how active they were and where they were everywhere and how now they're even not just around the border and uh, but they're in Ukraine serving meals in Kiev and live. They are actually there, you know, wearing flak jackets, et cetera. But they were everywhere. And, and you know, on this, uh, this show, I should just remind listeners, because it's really coming from listeners, that we've uh, donated $25,000 to World Central Kitchen for the work they're doing uh, on the border and also to an organization in Yemen, which we're going to announce uh, shortly for the refugee work there. Finally, Curtis, just want to maybe see if this, if you gained any perspective on the military and political situation or solutions there. As we speak, uh, you know, the Russian army has been pushed back out of Kiev. They're, they're regrouping. They're moving away from the more challenging urban and forested environments um, over to the eastern part of the country that are more wide open, uh, where they have more political support. Did you get a sense of what solutions the Ukrainians see as real, as realistic? I, I think the people that were, you know, the refugees weren't focusing on it and talking about that. But you talk to the volunteers and some of the government officials that we talked to, I think there's just big uncertainty. They don't know where it's going to come out. But, you know, everybody around the world, and you can see it there too, is shocked at how well the Ukrainian army and the political leadership has done in this environment. I've sensed a change in terms of the world prepared to give more and do more for the Ukrainians since the uncovering of all the uh, murders and atrocities in the various towns. And, you know, one of the things that has struck me is all this talk about war crimes is that, you know, all the politicians want to talk about war crimes. But I don't know about you, Andy, but do you know of any leaders or any country that has ever been prosecuted for a war crime when they haven't been defeated first in battle and a war? So I guess my view is, and others share it, is that I think I'd rather not be talking so much about prosecuting war crimes that'll take whatever, but preventing tomorrow's war crimes. So your message, after seeing what you've seen, observing what you've been observing, is we need help to win the war. 
They have to, there is no solution other than them winning the war. Doing some type of partition, like North Korea, South Korea, things like that. Where does that get us? I think, you know, they've already had some of it, and that might be some type of, you know, way to get some type of peace done. But, you know, they're fighting a war, not just for themselves, but for all of us. Well, Curtis, it sounds like an amazing, amazing trip, and really appreciate you coming back to uh, relate it all to us. No, thank you, Andy, for having me. I thought it was interesting. You know, one, someone said something really well. He said, if you would have taken all the things that we saw and put it in black and white pictures rather than color, you would have been watching the newsreels from World War II. Wait, that's, that's a tough way to look at it, but it's, it's really true. Uh, we haven't seen this kind of thing in um, 75 years or more. Yeah. There. It's Julia Louis Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com slash survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. Again, I think this is probably one of the last times I'm going to ask you if you want to vote for our show for a Webby Award. There's a link in the show notes to do that. We're nominated for two awards. We're up to 25% in the health and wellness category for best health and wellness podcast. And that puts us in second place. And for best host, 15% in third place. I'm sure you're sick of me uh, talking about that, but I appreciate you sticking with me. All right. Let's turn to Alan, who is an executive vice president at CVS Health. He's actually someone I've known for quite a while, and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Uh, we go in fairly deeply into the issues uh, in the healthcare system that I spend a lot of time thinking about, that he spends a lot of time thinking about, and it's almost like you're listening into a private conversation where we get into some of the tough topics. Here it is. Alan, great to have you on the show. You've asked us specifically not to call you Dr. Laffin, so we're going to call you Alan. 
and you call me whatever you like. Um, so we've just been through um, a pretty remarkable period. Just not to suggest we're done with it, uh, but we're certainly moving to new a new stage. You have been a practitioner uh, and a student and a leader in the healthcare system for a long time. How, how did the healthcare system respond in the U.S. compared to your expectations? That's, that's a very good and very complicated question. I think there, there are absolute bright spots, right? If you think about the ability of the healthcare system in the U.S. to um, mobilize an enormous number of people, the rapidity of learning on how to treat these critically ill patients. I don't know if you remember early in the in the pandemic, everyone got into this idea of proning, turning the intubated patients upside down, which was something that you know, never heard of when I was in practice. So the the, the experimentation, the, the trying out new therapies that happened very early in the pandemic, you saw the the, the mortality curves come down you know, relatively rapidly. I think the ability of the um, industry to generate a vaccine and treatments in, in record time, the ability to test them completely, demonstrate they were safe in all sorts of populations, right? So the, these probably were some of the more diverse trials that were ever done in the country, really sort of spoke to the, the ability of the, of the healthcare system. Now, that was on the good side, right? On the bad side, we, we saw the problems of the hyper-efficiency of our healthcare system. We don't have the capacity to handle this many really ill people. Uh, let, let's let pick up on some of the positives to, to start with. Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be lost on us that when, when this started in China and in Italy and in New York, you know, generally speaking, um, there was, because there wasn't a standard of care, it was a novel virus, um, we had a healthcare system that, you know, you know, you expect to go to the hospital, you'd expect to be ventilated, you'd expect to die, um, although obviously many, many people survived. Um, but this idea of a, of a learning healthcare system and a rapidly evolving standard of care, you make this really interesting point about when you talked about proning, um, which is to say, you know, when do you put someone on a ventilator? And if so, um, is there a way to do it? And this idea of proning, putting them on their, on their stomach, which is, by the way, much harder than it sounds. Um, it's like a seven-person job. Um, evolved. And, you know, there, there's, an, there's an old saying in healthcare that if there's a new standard of care in healthcare, it takes about seven years normally to permeate the healthcare system. Um, so new knowledge appears somewhere at seven years before it's used everywhere. Yet in this public health crisis, this idea of when to put people on a ventilator and how, how to do this rapidly save lives. And it seemed like it happened in a matter of, I don't know, almost weeks or months. Does that tell you that there's something in the healthcare system that doesn't meet the eye that is, that that's actually more capable than we thought? Um, wow. That's really uh, the thoughtful observation. So I, you know, I think the, what was really fascinating about that early experience, right, was you know there was a you know people who, who wandered into the emergency room with COVID who had oxygen saturations, a measure of how much oxygen's in the blood of eighty percent. You you would not you know before COVID you'd probably say that's almost not compatible with life, but these people were asymptomatic. So you know, so I think we learned a lot. Why did we learn so fast? I think 
a couple of things. So one, I think it was, it is that kind of sense of emergency and people kind of did what they needed to do. It was that kind of field medicine approach. I think the second part was it is a, it's a narrow scope. We were working in thousands of hospitals, not tens or hundreds of thousands of doctor's offices. You were working in an environment that was often full of, of doctors and nurses who self-selected out into these critical care specialties who were self-selecting into an area that was rapidly evolving. What happened in COVID, you had a bunch of very motivated, relatively small group of people who were communicating constantly because they were learning together. It was the epitome of a learning system. Right. This idea of preprints, which was a little scary, and by preprint, I mean this idea that someone make an observation, publish something without being peer-reviewed, in some sense, it's scary. If you're not in a crisis, um, it, that's how propaganda starts. That's how rumors start. Uh, it, anybody can self-publish. But it feels like it served us well more than it didn't. Am I am I wrong about that? No, I think that's right. And again, I think it's you know part of part of peer review is to ensure that there wasn't even inadvertent bias. I mean, clearly, real bias are problem. But even inadvertent bias. But I think. What what substituted for peer review in this in this scenario, and I'm hypothesizing to a certain extent, was personal relationships. I know so and so. I trained the so and so. I did this, and the very rapid ability to validate yourself that yes, flipping the person onto their belly with seven people made a difference. Right. Yes, you didn't have to intubate everyone at 85, or you know. So it, it be, you were able to very quickly um, now. The other part that you got to be careful about is as you got further and further away from those really acute, clearly demonstrated outcomes, it gets easier and easier to to introduce bias. But yeah, I think that's a lot of it. Yeah, it's, you know, I actually think I gained some trust in people's ability to curate, right? So, you know, if there was a preprint which said, you know, we've talked, we've seen 30 people and this is how they responded, it felt like people did a, and by people now, I'm actually talking about clinicians and scientists in the medical community. I'm not talking about about you know all of the rest of us, but it felt like people were you contextualized each of these studies, and, and you would all, people would say, well, it's only one, or now we're seeing this everywhere, or you know what, it's the best information we have, so we use it, and it feels like the, globally the medical community was, you know, something happened in South Africa, we'd see something in a lab, it would get published. People would explore it. People, you know, didn't overreact and underreact. And generally speaking, um, the knowledge got permeated. And in this world, it's sort of a vote for, you know, it's a vote for the things that we criticize all the time. The internet, global connectivity, uh, knowledge sharing, you know, pre-internet, right? You know, that, that stuff would have been impossible. That, that felt like maybe one of the good guys for us. Well, that's right. And if you think about even the, what led to the, the mRNA vaccines was, you know, the, the virus genome was published in some ridiculously short period of time by, by the Chinese scientists. And that allowed people to go right in and start designing these things. I think the other part, you know, in addition to that rapid feedback is I don't think anyone saw any ulterior motive here. Like there was no, it was clear this was a public health emergency. There was no profit motive. There was no self-aggrandizement motive. There was, there was nothing other than we have to figure out how to get in front of these really, really sick people and treat them. And it, it, was, it was the best of what you could hope for. <laughs> it's funny. That's exactly where I want to go next because you know what you made me think of, Alan, is in some ways I feel like 
in a sneaky way, COVID-19 was Americans' first experience with single-payer health care. And here's what I mean by that. Um, the government basically said, you know, we're going to pay hospitals effectively eventually for shortcomings that, that you have. We're going to pay the pharmacies for whoever comes in to take a vaccine or eventually, you know, even tests and certainly therapies, um, regardless of their insurance status. Um, and you as a patient, cost is not an issue. There's no copay to get a good vaccine. Um, there'll be no cost to getting medical treatment. This stuff is hard enough as it is. We're going to take all the financial stuff off the table. And the one thing up until recently when we've started to deal with Congress, whether they would put more, more funds together for future needs, it, it, up until this point, that just hasn't been on the table. And you know, you and I both know, and we, we've been this been around healthcare for a long time, that you can't uh, until this point you can't have a conversation about healthcare without saying, well, what's the incentive to your point you were just making, and who's going to do well financially, and do you really trust that? And if you're going to make this work, um, you're going to have to do pay people more, or you're going to be robbing access of people who are have a tough time, even if they had the funds, they're, they're, they have access issues, as we've seen. I thought, I don't know, is there something Is there something we learn from that? I mean, this is not what Bernie Sanders had in mind, but it's very interesting. Yeah, no, it's an interesting perspective. And I, I think one part of me is, says, like, let's look at all the other healthcare systems that already have single-payer systems and say, why didn't they do quite as well as we did, right? And, and I think part of... Part of that is, um, in addition to making all of the financial issues go away for individuals and for any, actually anyone in the chain, right? It was just like, listen, we need you to do this and we promise we're going to pay you. And that's backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government and we'll figure it out later on. And by and large, I think that sort of worked out. I think it's also that, you know, we, we threw an overwhelming amount of money at this, right? So if you look at the early, early vaccine discussions, I think the the some of the other uh, developed countries in particular were trying to negotiate price and and we just said we're going to buy 500 million doses and 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 almost cost be damned and and so I think the question is how do we take the best of what we learned from from this because the speed you know the other thing that gets lost sometimes is those vaccines were all given under EUAs which is, in our current system is like the only way you were going to get them paid for is if the government paid for it. So that could be a, but how do we get that speed for other critical things? Because there's so many diseases that kill more people than COVID, right? But we've sort of tolerated that level of, of morbidity and mortality for years. Yeah. And how do we sort of think about bringing that yeah. speed to bear? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a great point. I mean, I, I'm on a, I haven't talked about this in the show, but I'm on a uh, just was named to a White House task force to look at the future of pandemic preparedness or the current pandemic preparedness or what have you. And I think that's a really, really important observation you just made, which is, you know, when we got ourselves on quote unquote wartime footing, um, at least at the FDA to to focus there where you did, um, they have a different set of rules to make decisions, and those rules essentially say. You know, you don't need to have belt and suspenders and be 100% certain of everything before you approve something. You really have to prove that the benefits really significantly outweigh the risk for, the, the, you know, for, and for a significant enough part of the population. 
and it's a more practical standard and it and it's one that should apply in, in more time uh and then you have to ask yourself well, wait a minute why should it why should sh- should some of this apply in peacetime and by the way the fda operated under those terms but the cdc you could argue um really didn't um necessarily um move to a different type of footing or or if they did it maybe it took them a little bit of time um and and likewise you know we don't have a stand at the ready public health system all across the u.s like you do in parts of the world like brazil and uh many many other countries we act, we expect our private healthcare system to be both a private healthcare system and our public healthcare system so it really begs the question of what did we see either that worked that we want to keep or maybe that didn't work and we really know we need to change so that's a, there, there's a lot in there and there and I'll, I'll start with the fda and, and and i'll start by saying look, the fda is full of really really smart people who are doing really really good work the one thing this pandemic demonstrated with the fda the fda has always sort of looks at its risk aversion. How do I avoid a problem? And the issue of a therapy not being available for a period of time generally doesn't fall into the calculus. So that's the speed problem. And anyone who's worked with the FDA will, 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 can share with you kind of stories about, you know, challenges and staff turnover, all sorts of things. It ultimately comes down to incentives and, and how, we're, how they're measured. The FDA, when you talk to them, are clearly they are worried about making an affirmative decision that results in in something bad happening. A non-decision that results in therapies not hitting market in general doesn't fall into their calculus. Under the pandemic, when you know when a million people were getting sick a day, it came into the calculus. And so the question becomes: Is do we need to think about? How what we direct the FDA to do because you know I assure you the people the FDA don't wake up in the morning and go how do I slow down innovation that's not what they're trying to do right, right? they're trying to say right. you told me to be safe I'm trying to be safe so that's where I think you know that's one area we can think about I think the other thing to think about as you brought up earlier is how do we create a more robust rapid response to emerging diseases that present new therapeutic challenges. And again, we self-organized, right? The pulmonologist self-organized because this was so fast and so rapid. Like if you said, supposing COVID happened at one-fifth the speed, sort of more like HIV maybe, I don't know that we would have learned as much as quickly. I don't know that we would have had the sharing. Right. And so how, if you're going to have a robust, resilient system, you got to be able to handle super aggressive, like like we saw with COVID, and maybe not so aggressive as well, where it might be harder to get that self-reinforcing uh, uh, experience. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. 
From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Let's spend a second on some of the things we learned about the healthcare system that aren't so flattering um, that were revealed. And I want to start um, with this idea of trust. And what what seemed interesting is the very heterogeneous reaction of people in the country to a situation that was clearly going to end up being one of the two or three or four biggest killers uh, that we had and was going to prey, as we quickly learned, on people who were older, uh, people who were um, sick already in some form or another, including people who had chronic conditions and like obesity, that were going to uh, leave a lot of people um, only mildly affected, but they would be um, impacting others. And that would really hurt communities where people worked by the hour, worked with the public, worked in frontline jobs, much more than people like me who can sit in the comfort of my home and get on Zoom and, and work. So the diversity reaction included people who I think very much tried to figure out what the right thing to do was, and it wasn't always clear, but had clearly enough trust in the process and in medicine and in science. And that included another group of people who I think have revealed themselves to be quite skeptical of the institutions of this country um, skeptical of government for sure, skeptical of pharmaceutical companies, skeptical of um, corporations, skeptical of science and expertise. It almost belied a sense that the, even the pace at which um, the smart people, the scientists, the, the medical community was moving, there are a lot of people who in this country who feel very disconnected, not just from our healthcare system, but I think to just feel disconnected in general. You know, one of the things about you and your organization is you are multi-local. Um, you're not just a national organization, but you are deeply embedded in communities. Did you notice in different regions, different parts of the country, um, different attitudes towards masking vaccines? I mean, you must have a lot of data which showed urban, rural, um, north, south, east, west, 
some of the differences that that must have been occurring. Did you did you experience the diversity of this country in a, in a microcosm? Oh, we, we you know we absolutely did. And again, you know, with with uh, close to ten thousand stores, you know, all over the country. I think the the statistic, and, and I'll, I'll get it close, but it's something like eighty percent of the population is within ten miles of one of our stores. So we really do see 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 a microcosm. And, and depending on which variable you were looking at, you definitely saw. We definitely saw um, what's been reported. We saw lower vaccination rates in the Southeast. We saw lower vaccination rates in, in Black communities. We saw far less mask use, far less um, demand for testing in, in, in the sort of Sunbelt area than we did in, in, in the Northeast. And so I think I think you definitely see it, and it, it tracks it tracks political borderlines, it tracks um, socioeconomic borderlines, it tracks racial and ethnic borderlines. No question about it. Okay. Um, but, you know, there's another element of this now as a kind of a topic right now I think people are interested in, which President Biden talked about, which is this idea of test to treat. And can you explain what that is? Yeah. So, so test to treat is this idea that we have, we have um, effective antivirals, but they need to be given quickly. Right, so how do you, if you just were an industrial process engineer, you'd say, how do I go from, I see the test, I get the positive test to dispensing and administering the, the drug as quickly as possible. And, and clearly, most people get their drugs at, a, at uh, one of the 60,000 plus drugstores in the United States. It's also a place where a lot of people get their COVID tests. So let's connect the two and ensure that as soon as we see a positive test, they can see a uh, professional with prescribing ability who can give them the course of, of antivirals and just shorten the time. Because we know the antivirals shorten the time, reduce your risk of, of dying, reduce your risk of hospitalization, shorten the time for recovery. So that was the idea behind test and treat. And, and you know, again, the obvious state place to do it is use the existing supply chain and existing workforce you have. Okay. Sounds like we're simplifying things for people. They can get masks for free. They can go in and get tests. Uh, if they get a positive test, they can be right there, get, get a treatment. So, look, it takes us a little while sometimes, uh, but we can, we can do big things if we all, we all work together. Um, can you go into the slightly more futuristic space a little bit now with you? Because it's just sort of fun to do. And you know, we all kind of imagine a better healthcare system in the abstract, but we were kind of talking a little bit earlier about how we we're going to have this major labor crisis in this country. And I think, I think it's the way I would put it is we have more nurses and doctors today than we will probably ever have ever again in this country. And it may not ever get to 70 to 80% of where we are today ever again. Um, and then we're going to have to restructure our healthcare system by necessity. Uh, we're going to have to make some changes and make some, make some choices and some of that is scary, right? None of us wants to think about not being able to get the care we need. But some of it is kind of potentially as positive. And here's what I mean. If you think about the number of things that people go to the hospital for today and need to get admitted for that could and should be able to be done um, at home, in the community, in more comfortable settings, um, to think about the things that are done in person that maybe we've learned could be done virtually, uh, meaning um, over text, over over video, um, tools that more and more more and more people have. 
um, that by necessity, we might start to see, or will we start to see those things um, as a replacement? This is an area where you've done a tremendous amount of thinking over your career around the structure of the healthcare system, where people should get care, where the best place is, and how that redesign works. Could we see this hasten? And what have you observed about virtual care and what could be done there? And what else could be done in lower cost, more comfortable settings? So, so, um, that's, really, that's really one of my favorite topics, right? So the arc of, of medical care is moving towards kind of less invasive, um, more outpatient sort of thing. So if you think about when I was back in, in my training, you know, there was a procedure for ulcers. It was a surgical procedure to cure ulcers. And then that little purple pill came along. And I doubt there's a person, a surgeon left who can do it. They got him in pyloroplasty, right? It just doesn't exist anymore. You went from an inpatient seven, eight day stay to be, you take a few pills. You know, all the things we talk about for, you know, orthopedic surgery becomes same day, next day, outpatient. All of those are moving things out of the hospital. The next step becomes is how do you move even more kind of observational things out of hospitals into other settings, whether it's home, whether it's outpatient. And I think, so I think we're going to see a healthcare system, a couple of things that, that, that you brought up. So one is we have to make sure that every licensed professional we have is operating at the top of their license, right? Explain what that means, top of their license. Sure. So, so I'm a, or I was a board certified cardiologist. I used to do angioplasty, but when I was in the office, I would see people with high blood pressure and high cholesterol. You did not need to see a board-certified interventional cardiologist to look at your cholesterol and go, oh, it's 240. I want it to be 200. Let's increase your atorvastatin. So the top of your license means you know, you're using specialists to do specialists, right? So that's what I mean by that. And I think we can, we can have nurse practitioners and physician's assistants and pharmacists do so much more given the amount of training and education they have than we do today. So that's one way to help with that shortage. I think the second way is to bring more technology into the world. And I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of what it means when we're all wearing biometric monitors full time, all the time. We are? Yep. Your smartwatch is a lot smarter than you think, and it's only going to continue to get smarter and smarter and smarter. Now, for people out there listening, should we like that? Should we be worried about it? How should we be thinking about it? Oh, I, I, I think with the right privacy controls, you should love it. And, and the reason is, I'll give you a very, very fast example. So imagine that you're a little bit older uh, and um, we're tracking your steps over the course of two years. Now, if, let's say if every week you're, the number of steps you take goes down by 10 and your step length narrows. Right? And you get a little bit more unsteady on your feet. I want to know that as soon as I can, right? Because it could be an early indicator of all sorts of diseases. It could also be an early indicator of just not doing enough physical therapy and physical work. So, so that's an example. You can look at your heart rate and the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, right? Which is a, an unusual heart rhythm, which can lead to stroke. There is a group that I met that was fascinating just from your heart rate. They were able to diagnose or suggest that you might have diabetes. So there's this whole, you know, the combination of monitoring and AI and closing that feedback loop is going to create real opportunities for very early diagnosis, the ability to track therapy, et cetera. So I'm very hopeful for the ability of technology to 
to augment and help us become confidently self-serve for our own health. So, okay, and you put this benefit in the category of number one, prevention. Um, uh, you can see, you, maybe you, you, this technology can help you see things um, that you otherwise would have to wait to an annual checkup if you even went to an annual checkup. And by the way, your annual checkup increasingly may be just a, a doc spending 30 minutes with you um, who, who but won't have those insights. And secondly, I'm hearing that if you have a chronic illness, uh, that, you know, it can help, you know, people who have chronic illnesses, it can help monitor those chronic illnesses to make sure they're being well managed. So th- those are two things you feel pretty confident technology can help with. Yeah. So, so, and again, it's also, I think it's going to let us do things we wouldn't otherwise do. It's like, you know, the story of the frog that you boil by turning the heat on, which I don't actually think is true. I think the frog jumps out at some point, but in any case, these really subtle- Wait a minute. The frog jumps, the frog jumps out? I think the frog jumps. I've, I've made so it. much of my life on that story being true. Huh. We need a different analogy. No one should try it. But I think, <laughs> the, I think the frog jumps out, but you know, these subtle changes over time, you just don't notice. So when you can track right. them electronically, you can notice them. So I think it's, it's early diagnosis. I think it's monitoring response to therapy. If you're, if you're on um, a, a very expensive drug for multiple sclerosis or for rheumatoid arthritis, again, if you're not getting up and moving around or you're getting up and moving around less this month than you did last month, well, maybe it means you're not responding to the therapy anymore. So I think those are all opportunities that we can start to think about. And then you'll get to more more. Uh, sort of futuristic ones around monitoring people postoperatively at home and, you know, maybe just being in the hospital for a very short period of time, but having a whole, like, almost hospital at home get delivered to your house that becomes, you know, linked and ob- observed remotely. I'm going to give you a big challenge about something that I know you care deeply about and I care deeply about. Can this be done in a way which doesn't increase the gap inequity that exists in this country, but actually decreases it? So that's a fantastic question. And it's, it's deeply important to me. So we're, we're doing a project right now where we, we looked at uh, people with high blood pressure. And we looked at, usually when, you, when someone has high blood pressure, you give them a drug. Rarely does the first drug and first dose work. You usually have to sort of play with the recipe, right? Titrate up, change the drug. What you see in, in um, zip codes that are, are, are lower socioeconomic class, like I, I, we don't get report of uh, race and ethnicity, but you'd see less titration of drug. Now, so the hypothesis is that that is an access issue, that there's just not enough doctors, you don't have enough time, people can't take time off work. That's where, you know, here, I, have a, I have a blood pressure cuff at my house. It's reliable. I can upload it to my doctor or remotely by telehealth and i create more access for communities where you know if you can't get off work between eight and five it may be hard to see the doctor so i think we really do have the opportunity to do that and then also you know when you're not using licensed professionals and you're using technology like and like everything else it's a lot cheaper a lot less expensive i would argue it's as if not more effective right because we're doctors and everyone else we're only human right? Algorithms are much, in some ways, they're much more reliable. And I have a lot of friends who are doctors who, who sort of decry and yell at me about cookbook medicine. And usually my tongue-in-cheek response is, not all of us are Julia Child. Probably better if we use a recipe right. every now and then. Right. 
Right. Well, I would say though your personality is much better than robot, um, <laughs> Alan. So you you got you got that go. People who want people who want to come in uh, and talk to humans. But no, I I, I, I see your point. I I think the thing that I would push us on, not just in this conversation, but as a system more broadly, is technology has always had the promise of closing gaps. Sometimes it does. You know, cell, cell phones in Africa is, a, is a, probably an example um, that people use frequently. But more often than not, either because of trust issues, because of access to technology issues, because you know broadband isn't yet a free universal good, for a whole variety of reasons, uh, technology tend to increase inequities, at least at first, more so than, than not. And what's done even, I think people who do things in lower income communities um, tend to have bells and whistles that cost a little more. For people, so you can get an exercise bike, use exercise bike in low income community, but you can't get a Peloton, um, and, and you're you're not completely self actualized. I'm told until you have a Peloton, um, you're not really don't understand what true joy and happiness and harmony is until you have a multi thousand dollar bike. Um, but but all, in all in all in all seriousness, like I do think it takes more work. What I learned, you know, in the White House vaccination process is if you just do the job, um, whether it's rolling out vaccinations or anything else, and you don't pay special attention to it, you you send vaccines to, to Oakland, and guess what? People from San Francisco get on the BART and go into Oakland, and they take all the vaccines. Unless you actually say, these vaccines are going to these zip codes, must be used by people in these communities, then it doesn't happen. And I think our healthcare system is nothing but thousands of stories every day yep. where people who have a more complicated life, but the same medical condition as someone else, just get a, a worse outcome because they have lower access, face bias, uh, and so on. And I think designing technology policy, I'm going on a little bit of a soapbox here, but figuring out how to do this is in a way that benefits the people who need it the most is pretty complex. It, it is. And I, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I think that the promise of technology is the promise of, you know, democratization of, of, of access of, you know, to some extent, as, as uh, Peter Diamante says, demonetization, right? You, you sort of, it becomes, you know, no one carries a camera anymore because it's on your phone, right? But I think with, as I think about the healthcare system and, and, you know, how do we really get to the next level in all communities? It's, it's taking a systems approach to it. It's saying what's the problem is not always medical, right? The problem sometimes is you need to be open from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. at least occasionally, right? You need to be available on weekends. You need to be available at night. You can't ask people to wait in offices. So it's what does an individual need? How do you set up a, a primary care system, a healthcare system that really is focused on what a patient needs and says, you know, has a team of people who are taking care of them. We talked about kind of the kind of shifting shift work mentality or shifting way that doctors work. A good part about that is let's work in teams. Let's have everyone at the top of their license. Let's make sure that everyone sees in a workflow system what has to happen next for a patient. Let's bring that care closer to them, whether it's because the actual physical clinic is closer to them, because we're doing it virtually, we're going to their home, we're enabling technologies 
And again, you know, the technologies don't have to be permanent. We don't have to look for people to buy some of these things. Like we can figure out how to use it on a, on a, on a different business model to put it with people for the period of time they need it. Because they may not need it for the whole time. Like you don't need the blood pressure cop once you're on a stable dose. Maybe you get checked every quarter then. We take it back, we give it to someone else. I mean, those are, I think there's a lot of different models that we can conceptualize, but it starts with what does that individual human being need in order to help them sort of actualize the, the, the life they want to lead, uh, even if it's without a Peloton, as you would say. <laughs> well, thank you for this wide-ranging conversation. There's very few people that I think could, could go as wide as we did and uh, and certainly as deep into some of these uh, topics um, and diversely as, as you did, Alan, um, your knowledge and your breath uh, and your insight and your practical thinking um, really, I think, is helpful to all of us as we think through what we got to do next in healthcare. Well, Andy, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. And I would say that, you know, the only the the uh, in an interview, the questions are are arguably more important than the answers, because you can only give a good answer to a good question. That was a really eventful show, and if that wasn't eventful enough, I, I probably harder part for me is I want to dedicate this episode to uh, my partner on the show, who is leaving for uh, bluer waters. I actually think they may be greener waters or grayer waters, but nevertheless, Chrissy Pease uh, and Alex McGowan, who are the senior producer and the producer of the show, uh, who've been with the show since almost the beginning, uh, 150 episodes or so, are moving on. Uh, they're staying within the Lemonada family. They're still going to be close. But I wanted to thank Chrissy and Alex for the partnership. There's a lot of great stuff we've done on the show together. Chrissy is equally responsible, if not more so, for a lot of it. You know, She spent a lot of effort and energy making me sound better, making me smarter, finding great guests. And, you know, she cared about the show uh, as much as anybody could possibly hope for. And, you know, from texting me in the middle of the night about a guest idea to helping to edit out some things that I didn't do well or asking me to do stuff again and just being a funny, regular person putting up with my jokes. So you're going to hear a different roll of the credits you can hear some new names, some people that I think uh, you will absolutely love. Uh, I have adored meeting. It's a new team here at In the Bubble, and they're going to be on the episode on Monday. I'm going to chat with them a little bit about what's coming next in the show because there are some changes in order. Uh, these people who've come have come with an agenda. They're going to change the show. They're going to change me. You're not going to recognize it. Well, you'll recognize it, and I'm 55, so how much can you really change me anyway? Anyway, looking forward to that and our next uh, upcoming shows. Sir David Pryor, the head of the National Health Service in England. Uwe Schoenbach, who is one of the scientists that has been pioneering work on the mRNA platform about what 
changes that has in store for us. So more lessons learned. And exclusively, the FDA Commissioner Rob Califf, the new FDA Commissioner Rob Califf, who I am going to get to the bottom of quite a few things with Rob. Look forward to those conversations, and I hope you have a great rest of the week. Thank you for listening to In the Bubble. We're a production of Lemonada Media. Catherine Barnes, Jackie Harris, and Cal Sheely produce our show, and they're great. Our mix is by Noah Smith and James Barber, and they're great too. Steve Delson is the Vice President of Weekly Content, and he's okay too. And of course, the ultimate bosses, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and Stephanie Whittleswax. They executive produced the show, and we love them dearly. Our theme was composed by Dan Malad and Oliver Hill, with additional music by Ivan Kuryev. You can find out more about our show on social media at Lemonada Media, where you can also get a transcript of the show, and you can find me at Acelabit on Twitter. If you like what you heard today, why don't you tell your friends to listen as well and get them to write a review. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Last Day from Lemonada Media explores the moments that change us. Those times where you look back and say, whoa, one day I was myself and the next I wasn't. I'm Stephanie Whittleswax, and I have seen time and time again how sharing these stories can change lives. So do you have a moment in your life that changed you fundamentally and forever? What happened? How did you move through it? And how did you eventually start again? If you'd like to share your story, go to bit.ly slash lastdaystories, B-I-T dot L-Y slash lastdaystories. We can't wait to hear from you. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah, as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts.